Hi, my name is Jesse Cannon, and I've devoted my life to trying to go deep and figure out what goes into making great records. I've produced over 1,000 albums, written two books, and recorded hundreds of podcasts pursuing the hidden secrets of how great music gets to the world's ears. Now I'm proud to present to you Atlantic Records' Inside the Album podcast, where we get to go deeper on how some of Atlantic's artists have made the amazing songs in their catalog. We will hear firsthand from the artists and the team behind them that helped craft this amazing music and get to know the little secrets that go into making an amazing album. On this episode, we're going to go deep on Nothing Nowhere's sophomore LP, Runer. Joe Mulherin, aka Nothing Nowhere, has been one of the most talked about musicians of the last year. After releasing a string of singles and last year's debut LP, Reaper, his music lit up the internet with discussion about the way he blends different genres of music. Often employing trap beats, classic emo guitar lines, singing and rapping, along with other borderless musical cues, his music sounds like the pain and sadness of youth. Behind all the talk, labels applied to his music, and a New York Times number one album of the year accolade, you have an artist with a unique voice who is just trying to make the music that sounds like what he feels. Years ago, I was lucky enough to catch his first NYC show at Rough Trade before signing to Equal Vision Records, and what I heard was a unique voice that was being incredibly vulnerable that night. Shortly after releasing his debut album, he made the move to Fueled by Ramen Records and quickly released his sophomore LP, which we're here at Atlantic Studios in NYC to talk about today. Let's start this podcast off with him telling how we got to the studio in New York and everything that's happened along the way. I was making music since I was 12 years old. I tried everything under the sun, very interested in hardcore music, very interested in post-hardcore, first and second wave emo, whatever you want to call it. Was always interested in music. You know, I was in a lot of projects growing up, hardcore bands, you know, just all types of bands. They all fizzled out, nothing really stuck. So long story short, Nothing Nowhere was me letting go and just making stuff that I want to make and getting experimental and just being weird. So it was a lot of failure and a lot of confusion and me making weird, bad music. And then I made some more weird, bad music that some people liked, and that's nothing nowhere. Yeah, I released Reaper in October, you know, not shortly after we have Ruiner now. And this is still slow for me, you know, in terms of like before I was on like a label or established or anything, I was releasing something every week you know what i mean i remember that like a starry youtube job still yes. subscribe to that because <laughs> uh, you, you guys were always putting out so much stuff yeah yeah you know it's so accessible music is so accessible to make now where it was just like i would be in the basement you know open up logic and i would just create something and post it that same day like there's no mixing and mastering there's none of that and like i'm always making music you know what i mean I'm really into like being experimental like sonically, but also within the process. Mm -hmm. So Reaper was created in probably the span of like six months or something. And it was a little bit more methodical, a little bit more picky in it. And so, you know, there was a lot of tracks that didn't make Reaper. It was just kind of, I don't want to say well thought out, but I put a lot of thought into it. And with Ruiner, I've been obsessed with sort of like minimalism, both in production and just process. With Ruiner, it was kind of like, well, what can happen when it's just stream of consciousness and I don't judge my own stuff and I make an album in two weeks? And that was the experimental process of it because I wanted to see what where that would take me. In terms of like releasing music so often, it's just like I have to make music and I'm always making music. Otherwise, I'm like bummed out. And when Fuel by Ramen said, hey, do you want to put something out? I was like, well, I got music, so let's do it. 
So one of the more interesting parts of Joe's trajectory is he released his sophomore album in less than six months after his debut album, which is pretty much unheard of. So I wanted to talk to Johnny Minardi, who's A&R at Fueled by Ramen, about how this all happened and how he got to Fueled by Ramen. I found Nothing Nowhere through, I believe I saw someone tweet about it, oddly enough. I just started to listen to a couple of things he had on YouTube, and I kind of was astonished by the amount of plays and comments and just seemingly people excited about his stuff. It was weird because I had never heard of it, but I felt so immersed in it an hour into it. Kind of looked backwards and saw that it was managed by Vange and Zach at Synergy Management, who I had been friends with for years. So I reached out immediately, just kind of asked for more info what is this because it's very mysterious now let alone then it was even less info online or anywhere really so just kind of became obsessed with it immediately someone on my friends list shared it somewhere and i just happened to click on it very random I was at Equal Vision Records at the time when I did stumble upon it. I immediately started having conversations of what his vision was, what he wanted to do, how a label could support that. And at the same time, I was speaking with Pete Wentz of DCD2 Records about artists, and we were both trying to find one to work on together for the first time in 10 years or so. I just felt like this one had something to it that I thought he would react to as well, knowing his past and what he's liked and the bands that he's worked with, you know, ones we worked together and himself. Separately. He then reacted the same way as I, a half hour after I sent it to him, called me, freaked out and asked a lot more info. And I said, I'm actually digging into it right now. I don't know yet. And just kind of very serendipitously fell in love with it together. With Pete's relationship with Fuel Bar Ramen and my past with Fuel Bar Ramen when I used to work there, him and I and Fuel Bar Ramen kind of were always having conversations. And this happened to be one to where we all fell in love with it. I was at Equal Vision at the time and then I went to Fuel Bar Ramen. So we kind of all just followed suit and and brought it to a level to where we all work on it together, kind of where we are present day. Yeah, honestly, it was very interesting. This is the first time I've ever dealt with an artist that had no touring experience, no real experience with releasing music outside of him just recording music in his basement and putting it online and having it react. When we kind of would explain steps and what everything would entail when we release and get a publicist and get more music videos in places that weren't just on his channel or his friends' channels, we just kind of, you know, tried to keep the balance of his integrity and his vision because he was very much, I don't think, ready to just come out swinging in the sense that millions of people are about to fall in love with your music. So we wanted to make him comfortable, give him that advice of just, you just keep doing what you do and people are going to fall in love with it. You know, he's done that now for two, three years since I've worked with him. You got to really toe the line with an artist like this, with the sensitivity to, you know, him being mysterious and not really showing his face or wanting to be an image of anything outside of the fact that my music should speak for itself. So just keep telling people to listen to my music. And that's what we did. This is Pete Wentz, head of DCD2 and a member of Fall Out Boy on how he came to work with Joe. Yeah, I actually first heard him through Johnny, I think. I was just like looking for some new music. You know, I think since their streaming has kind of happened, there's a lot of people that are in SoundCloud. People have stumbled upon this like mixed genre, just kind of like mixing things together. I thought Joe did it in a really, really interesting way right off the bat. I hear a lot of stuff all the time. I'm kind of always looking for stuff. The interesting thing is like a lot of the stuff that people send me is just really, I don't know, like it's like not the direction that I think we're headed. Like, you know, like a lot of times I think people send me stuff that's similar to stuff that we've signed in the past, which is great and interesting, but I always like want us to lean towards the future and kind of find where's the next direction, like what's the next island we're going to kind of hop to. Joe definitely sounded like that to me. After hearing that, I reached out to Joe and just talked to him about what his, like first you find out if you like someone's art. 
if you do and that's interesting to you, you find out what their basic mission statement as an artist is. And then you see if you can align with that vision. You know, because there's a lot of people that, like, we originally signed Tiger back in the day. We've signed a couple people back in the, you know, like, if your vision doesn't line up with the artist's vision, it's just not going to work. You know, or else if you, you just can't be helpful for them. You know what I mean? And I think that something that we learned, you know, like that, that you, you see if you guys align and then you can help. Because, like, your job is to basically be helpful. You know, like, you can be a lifeboat or you can be a signal flare or you can be a magnifying glass or whatever it is, you know, but like you should be helpful. And if your vision is not aligned, you're not going to be able to be helpful. So I talked to Joe, got on the phone with him. It was interesting because he spent a lot of time in Vermont, which is where my parents have a house as well. And so we talked about that a ton, you know, and then talked about what his influences are and where he sees himself going. And it's just really interesting because from being in a thing for, you know, 15 or 20 years, it's hard to get a perspective on it. And talking to Joe for the first couple of times, really gave me a lot of perspective on maybe the way people two generations out kind of could view the band that I was in, you know, and that was like really interesting for me. Joe's perspective is really interesting. You know, like when we're putting out his album, he's like, yeah, but how do I like, you know, like I want to include like seeds, like a packet of seeds with the album. We're like, this is crazy, kind of, but we'll figure it out. And I think that that's, I think it's really interesting, you know, and it really lends itself to being different you know i mean because like i said there's a lot of people who you know like probably have been raised on different versions of the of that sonically at least and i think that it's pretty cool i then asked pete if there was any advice you gave him along the way yeah, I mean, like, when it came to uh, Clarity and the Kerosene, and it came to a couple songs, like, there was times when me and Joe would talk, because I think that, like, as an artist, you sometimes lose perspective, you know, like, where you're like, this song just sounds like a pop song or something like that, and you're like, well, you know, I remember talking to Joe, and it's like, well, to, to you, compared to the other to other nine songs on this album, this sounds like a pop song to you, but, like, no one who's listening to, you know, Top 40 Radio would in any way think that this is a pop song, and I think that sometimes giving somebody you know and that's what like what we did in this process was giving joe some of that perspective was important and then i think beyond that also is like i think that like one of and we did this a couple times is that one of the ways i think that it's important to talk to artists is like listen so like this is as somebody who's done this a couple times like if you make this decision you know these are the potential doors that will be open and these are the potential doors that will be closed so it's okay to make you know like because i think it's important for people to make decisions for themselves and to like have slip ups you hopefully just like when you're raising kids you want people to have like little slip ups and then you know they avoid the big ones themselves i think our biggest goal you know and as our our biggest goal always is to magnify joe's vision and here's joe's thoughts on that process honestly like like it's just been just me myself and i you know what i mean like in my own mind, I just like wanted to stay true to myself and just follow my gut. As simple as that sounds. I mean, like, you know, Reaper was a studio album and I went to a real studio and worked with a producer and it was a great process, but um, it was very different for me. You know, I'm, I made bedroom or basement music, you know. So Ruiner was kind of like returning to the roots a little bit. And like, I don't make things a big deal. Like, you know, like sophomore album, whatever. I'm going to make another album going to make another album. Maybe that's apathy. Maybe who knows what it is, but you know what I mean? Like, I just want to make music and people are going to say whatever they want to say about it. I just like, I'm happy making music. And like the sophomore album, like it didn't really scare me. It was just like, I feel like I've already made like five albums. So (laughs) I don't know. 
a touchstone Joe constantly comes back to is both vulnerability and honesty and being true to himself. So I had him talk about what that looks like in musical terms. Being like emotionally vulnerable is something huge in my music. And I, I don't like necessarily know how to write a song that's like happy or upbeat or, or write about those things in my life because music is cathartic for me and it's my own personal form of therapy as I'm sure it is for so many other artists. And one of the main reasons I make music is because it just makes me feel like a better person. It makes me feel happier and like want to wake up and stuff. So to get in that headspace, it's sort of like, when I'm not feeling good, when I'm feeling anxious or depressed or whatever, I'll kind of bust out a notepad and start just writing about it. I don't realize what the, the tone of these songs until looking back in retrospect. I was like, wow, okay, maybe I should talk to my therapist about this <laughs> because, you know, you're so in the process at the time. You know, it's a very personal process. My music is sort of my diary, and it's good that I forget about it because... You know, people can judge you or whatever, but it's, I've been learning to let go of that. Nothing nowhere is sort of letting go of that, just being emotionally honest. And I know that it helps people. And like, that's like the goal, you know, I feel like it's a journey that I'm still working on. You know what I mean? Like I can expand on some things in my albums, but I don't, I haven't been extremely specific with them. You know what mm. I mean? Like when I say like, you know, it's hard for me to wake up or something like that. It's not like the next verse is like, well, here's why. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm not not that it has to be. I don't think that everyone has to know specifically why. You know, moving forward, I think like I could even be more honest within my music. You know, I've been listening to a lot of, uh, you know, like Sun Kill Moon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's, 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 I think, actually the example of like too honest. <laughs> exactly. You know what I mean? It's like in that song, Carissa, or like he's like talking about a cousin that he barely knows that died from like an aerosol can exploding in a fire or something. It's like, I'm just so interested in that. But then you look at bands like Radiohead where it's like not that, you know what I mean? So highly emotional but abstract exactly and so my mind is all over the place in that creative process where i've been sort of in between that and i think moving forward i'd like to expand on that and try to play both sides of the field there kind of you know i'd be at like a song on the album rejector uh, on ruiner i feel like that was sort of me trying to get in that headspace of being abstract conveying a feeling through words and painting a picture, but not being so specific. I think it's just a fascinating thing to like experiment with, you know? Since it's so important for him to stay true to himself, I asked him how he's done that when everyone seems to have an opinion about his music these days. I don't know. I never expected for anyone to listen, let alone have, you know, like a publication like the New York Times or Billboard or whatever be interested in it. And I think that's kind of a testament of just like, just letting go and being myself with my music, finally. I don't know, because I'm not, like, a huge fan of my own stuff. I'm pretty critical. Yeah, I mean, like, at the end of the day, people are going to call my music whatever they're going to call it. People need to label things. It's just human nature. I don't expect them to say, this is just music, there's no genre. And, you know, you do run into that, like, nothing, nowhere is emo rap. People can call it that if they want to, but, like, for me personally... I just call it experimental music. I have so many influences and I draw from so many things. And with Ruiner, I really wanted to showcase that. You know, I was listening to James Blake or Frank Ocean or Sun Kill Moon. Or it's not just like, here's these two genres and let's mash them together. And I hope moving forward, you know, like 
I'm going to continue to be experimental and maybe people could see a different side of me. So now that we know how he got here, I wanted to talk about what were the thoughts that were going to be different about Runer compared to Reaper. The early material was just me, yeah, for a lot of it. And then, I, you know, I'd worked with some SoundCloud producers here and there, but it was pretty much just me just making a beat and playing guitar. And, and then I met JV on SoundCloud, you know, <laughs> oddly enough. You know, we've been working on a lot of stuff together now. So going back to being experimental in the process, like studio producer, I like an industry producer or whatever you want to call it. I had never been to a real studio, had never done that. So I flew out to L.A. and worked with like 15 different producers, just going from one to another, just see what it was like. You know, I finally came to Eric Ron and, and that was the first time where I heard my voice in that way. You know, I'm I'm used to like my $200 mic and my terrible preamp and my, I make my own pop filters out of like curtains. <laughs> and, uh, and that just really sold me. And, and, and it was a great process and everything. And listening back, it's, you know, I'm proud of what we did with Reaper. So Ruiner was the antithesis of that. You know what I mean? It was minimalism, you know, even with this, with the track names, you know, it's just one word. It's like with the, the guitars, a lot of them, there's not too much going on. You know, it's it's minimalist. The decision to just go back to just like working in that space, and it was just me and JV, I think it was cool. It just reminded me of like when I first started this project in 2015 and um, just being in the basement. I just wanted to revisit that and see how different it would sound given my new headspace and my new circumstances. Bruner is really just a collaboration between Joe and his co-producer, JV. So I wanted to find out how those two hooked up. Yeah, so I first heard JV's music just randomly scrolling through SoundCloud. And you hear a lot of stuff on SoundCloud. It's so oversaturated. And there's just something about his, uh, just his composition and his drums and like just the technical ability of it. Like he made some, I think the main thing was like the variety the versatility that he had because no one track was was sort of the same it was sort of like one song was, was like a ballad and it was a very good one like some some cool piano and then the next one would be like an extremely hard remix like trap remix and that was sort of you know i was doing the same type of thing so we started talking you know on skype and stuff and it was just a really uh organic process and now that we've heard Joe talk about JV, let's learn a little bit about him. So I just started making beats when I was in high school because I hung out with older kids all my life just because I started out skateboarding and like I would go to the skate park and just hang out with whoever was there. And it just ended up that I was always the youngest kid. When I was in high school, all those kids that I hung out with, they were into like rap music and, and making their own songs. And they were just really doing it just because like they're having fun and, and just wanted to like show off that they could rap to people. I just like thought that was the coolest thing ever that they can make their own music to listen to because I never even thought that just an ordinary person could make music. I was just super inspired to like start making their beats for them because I knew I couldn't rap. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I couldn't rap, but I, I wanted to like get involved and like help them out and stuff because at the time I was like watching anime and like listening to like Linkin Park and just shit that like they weren't really listening to. They were just into rap. So I was trying to like bring new stuff to like what they're doing and then i ended up like really loving that and like staying up every night making beats and not sleeping and shit <laughs> and uh just like that became my passion really quick i was using soundcloud to post my stuff 
And this was before like SoundCloud was really anything. It was just kind of a meme at one point. It was just like, <laughs> oh, check me out on SoundCloud. And it was just, a, it was just a joke. And uh, that's how I knew that it was something you could upload music to because it was a meme. <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny. <laughs> and uh, so I was just uploading shit on there and like sending it to people. And then, you know, I started finding cool artists on there and stuff. And then trying to branch out and like, I guess, network. But really, I was just making friends on there. And then uh, eventually I was going through my notifications and I saw that someone liked my track who had more followers than me and it was Joe. So I like checked out his music and I was like, wow, like this is next level. Like I want to get involved in this. So just sent him a message and we, uh, we bonded pretty quick. Since Joe and JV aren't exactly local to each other, I asked them about how they ended up meeting up. So I'm from Long Island, New York, and he is from like outside of Boston. We didn't even, like, talk about that for a while. Like, we were just talking about strictly music until we, like, got each other Skype and, like, started calling each other on Skype and, like, actually talking about stuff and, like, getting to know each other. But uh, we didn't even think about getting to hang out ever until um, Joe started doing shows and he came out to Brooklyn one night. I just met him there just, like, to see the show. And we just hung out for a bit. Eventually, things started picking up for him and, and I got to fly out and, like, come hang out and make music with him. I asked JV what he saw in Joe that makes him unique. What makes Joe different from other people is that he came up from a very different kind of um, upbringing than anyone around me ever did. Because being in touch with nature and like, I didn't grow up around that. And I think that kind of spoke to me when I met him because that's what I, I kind of wish I had. Kind of wish I grew up in the woods and like could just like get away and go hang out by the lake or something. That kind of upbringing he had, it definitely stands out to me because also he's very into um, like self-improvement and, you know, being a kind person to other people and, and being compassionate. Also, like being from Long Island, that's not like that's not like something that is cool to people. I think when I was I was growing up, I was told what is the right way to act around people that's how i went with things and i didn't realize until you know i got older that you know i can make these decisions myself and i, I should be more true to myself so I, I guess i saw that through joe hearing joe and jv talk about their collaboration it reminds me of some advice that pete wentz gave him as well it also speaks to why they released this sophomore record so fast i mean early on my advice to him was to find partners that Believe in your vision and believe in you as an artist, not someone who just lets one song of yours. Because when that song doesn't work, it all goes away, kind of, you know, or it can all go away. Two things that I'm a big believer in as far as, like, business side is, one, you have to do the work. And that's, like, you know, whether you do it on Twitter or you do it on SoundCloud or you go out and play shows, you have to do all of it. And doing, like, some of it or, like, expecting things to happen, I think very rarely is the way it happens. And the other is that when you get momentum... You need to get rid of all the red tape so you can go vertical super fast. So, like, I don't, I'm, like, a big believer in, like, listen, if your vision starts going, we got to just start, we got to, like, shorten the runway and just take off rather than, like, try to figure out, like, how it fits in the plan we originally had and stuff. So we'll have, like, a, a, a rollout plan, you know, that includes, like, instant grad tracks and, you know, the video teaser here. And to me, like, when, you know, and I can speak more to, like, probably, like, my own band, but, like, when something, sometimes it starts going sideways. And sometimes, obviously, it goes sideways in a way where, like, the rollout didn't happen right or people didn't like the song. But, like, sometimes, like, a song just starts working and you're, like, don't try to get it added to radio. But it gets added to radio and, and impacts or for some reason like 
Spotify adds it to like one of their playlists and it starts going. I think you just have to go with the song and let the music, because the audience, I think now the way people consume music and consume art, the audience dictates like what's a single or like, you know, a quote unquote single and what, you know, like whether the marketing plan's working. And I just am a big believer in like when it starts going in an authentic, organic way, you let the snowball roll rather than trying to come in and correct it. I think that like there's been times where we've tried to correct the course of it and it doesn't work because you, you either kill it or you put out like so much there's so much misinformation out there that like people are like i don't know what the song is and they're like you know like this is the song we all like but then all of a sudden they're pushing this other song you know and so i'm a big believer in letting the audience and the momentum dictate where you head and now i'd like to pause this program and tell you for a minute about what you can expect with the rest of this season of inside the album on this season we talked to dashboard confessional about making a record that pleases both himself and fans both old and new I like old stuff better, and I like moments and songs from our later era of recording. But as a whole body of work, I like everything up through half of Dusk and Summer. Jeff Richman and the creators of the hit play Mean Girls talk about what goes into developing a mega-hit Broadway play and cast recording. Trying to find out what is that song that you actually want to like sit down and write is tricky and is a challenge, because there's not that much real estate for songs, even though it's a musical. Vance Joy talks creating a follow-up to a successful debut album. And I'm more like eating my lunch before breakfast, kind of like getting too far ahead before I'm like focusing on just this one detail of what am I doing making a song. Pete Wentz of Fall Out Boy talks mentoring nothing nowhere. Like first you find out if you like someone's art. If you do and that's interesting to you, you find out what their basic mission statement as an artist is. And then you see if you can align with that vision. And we also talk to Grandson about crafting his highly politically charged debut EP, the indie rock band wallows on making a record that sounds like the loss of youth. Jason Mraz on finding a greater truth in music for his latest LP, No, and Brent Cobb on making honest music. Subscribe now and stay tuned for the deepest inside look you will get into how great records are being made today. You can also head to AtlanticPodcast.com for more information on this podcast and Atlantic Records. Next, I wanted to hear about how a song actually comes into being for Joe and get into his writing process. I mean, I write all my stuff up in Vermont. I think a lot of people know that. Like, I, I really enjoy it up there. You know, go for a hike, go for a kayak, um, kind of sit out outside with my acoustic and play around with different open tunings because I just love open tunings. And, um, you know, I think it all starts with a guitar riff. And, you know, you can sort of hear what something could become out of a guitar riff you know it's kind of like looking at like a piece of marble and like making it into a statue you know i've listened to guitar based music my whole life and and i've played guitar since i was 12 so it's just old reliable you know what i mean <laughs> you know like i i switch my style up all the time so moving forward i'm actually gonna try and start writing on piano oh, wow instead nice so it goes on guitar then what happens after you're sitting on the porch with the acoustic guitar yeah, so I, I write a riff on guitar, and then, uh, you know, if I was by myself, I'd just kind of, like, try and put some some drums over it, just some, like, bass and snare stuff. Or if I was with JV, we would start, like, sculpting a beat, 
and then adding some sub bass and some hi-hats. And then from there, what you have is pretty much just like a glorified loop. Mm -hmm. And then it's kind of like, okay, where do I go from there? And, um, you know, like building the, building a bridge or whatever. And, or just not like not even having like song structure. It's pretty much just like, I'm in my basement (laughs) playing Xbox, like turning around and like, messing up some guitar stuff and then playing more xbox it's like not a glamorous process but it is like you know it's me it's what i've always done since i was little we're just weird guys making weird music and that was kind of it you know what i mean the first song we ever made was uh was like inspired by title fight um we were both listening to a lot of title fight and it was like and it's still on soundcloud to this day it's called flesh that's just kind of been the 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 whole like mantra was like make stuff you want to make and like don't worry about like genres or barriers or whatever like i'm sure someday we'll put out a jazz album or something mm-hmm. like <laughs> i feel like if, if if i listen to a track before i put vocals on it it needs to elicit a certain response from me like you know right away like right away and you know if a riff is gonna work you know if you know progression is gonna work and if you really have to think about it it's probably not worth your time it should be kind of like a zen experience, kind of like mindless. It speaks to you, you know what I mean? So I think I'm becoming more in tune to that, to like not force songs. I wanted to find out how many songs he's throwing away versus how many we hear, since I find that's one of the more defining traits of an artist these days. I want to say 60-40, 60% throw away, 40% keep. But this was all within a two-week period. Ruiner was written and recorded in like two weeks we had i have more throwaway tracks than i've ever released music you know what i mean i have hundreds of tracks that will never see the light of day i don't know if it's because they're not nothing nowhere songs i think it's just because they don't feel authentic to my emotions i i want a song to be an accurate reflection of how i'm feeling at that moment i don't want it to be forced or like seem like I'm, you know, writing a sad song just for it to be a sad song. So I'm really sensitive to that. But I feel like, you know, what is a Nothing Nowhere song? You know, a Nothing Nowhere song is just, there is no label. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's always changing. I don't want it to be like, oh, there's guitar and there's trap drums. It's a Nothing Nowhere song. I want it to be just like ever changing. Hearing Joe talk about how he has to make music that's authentic to him. And then squaring it with that a lot of his lyrics are really dark and sometimes even suicidal. You kind of begin to wonder, is he okay? Johnny Minardi had this to say about that. He's very much just wearing his heart on his sleeve in the sense that his relationships or the battle with anxiety and suicidal thoughts and not making it as taboo as poor me, but more like being so open and honest and just ripping himself open for it. I mean, there's times listening to his music, I'll have to like midway through the first time I hear something, call him and ask him if he's actually okay. It would very much sometimes be like, yeah, 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 it's good. Like I worked through it. This is how I felt last week. And it's like, holy shit, there's some very, very dark pieces to it. In conversation, I always pull them aside and say like always most important that health is the number one priority. So if you ever feel too far down, dark enough to not make music or to make music with all this dark undertones, let's make sure that number one is health. You know, your health is always that. So we talked a bit about Joe's writing process and how he feels things out. But what happened when they actually recorded this record? For most of Ruiner, the quote-unquote studio where the writing was was in the basement of my uh, my parents' cabin in Vermont. Pretty much nothing down there. It's uh, a washer and dryer. 
Um, there used to be a pool table. That was kind of cool. There's, there's nothing there now. But I mean, we, we took some trips down in, in, into the city, into New York, you know, we recorded a lot over at, um, Sony BMG, which was a very small, similar setup. It just so happened to be in New York city. So we had fun, uh, you know, for two weeks, actually tracking the stuff in New York, you know, it was just, you know, I wanted to switch up the process and put myself in an environment that I wasn't necessarily comfortable in, you know, New York city. Yeah, and it, actually we did a fair amount of writing actually in the studio in New York. We weren't really expecting to, mm. but it just kind of like we were all like we were just there. You know, like I said, like you you hear something and we were like, well, we got to capitalize on it and make a song. So, yeah, actually Hammer, you know, was sort of a song that we made while we were here in New York City. Wasn't really planning on making a song like that. It was just kind of like we looped this thing and we we're like, whoa, this is something very different here. Long story short, we recorded it, and I was up till 6.30 a.m. listening to the rough bounce of it, like, in the hotel room. You know, we do, like, eight-hour sessions at the most a day. So when we did it at night, you know, we, we like, roll into the studio at, like, 6 p.m., and we leave at, like, 3.30 or, like, 4 a.m. Um, we just do that every day. We did that for two weeks until we had an album. For the mixing, it was just the our friends at Sony BMG, um... Nolan and Drew, um, they engineered those sessions and they just mixed it. And then um, we sent it out to uh, Chris Athens to be mastered. Yeah, that was, you know, sounded pretty crispy. If you've ever spent a long time making music in the studio, particularly a two-week stretch, you start to know that humor is necessary, even for music as dark as Joe's. So we met a new person during the making of Ruiner. You know, he's a big wig uh, record exec and his name was uh, Tony Taint. And this man is not real. It just happens to be JV's impression of this ridiculous guy named Tony Taint, who is constantly coming into the studio and looking for a smash hit that Sirius XM can play. (laughs) 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 And he would just constantly say that he has Sirius XM on the line. And honestly, like whenever we get like stressed out or whatever, he would just bust out Tony Taint. And we would just die laughing, like, because, like, so much is, like, you know, like, oh, you need a single or whatever. And no one's ever really pressured me on that. But it was just so funny to, like, Tony Taint was the reminder that, like, making an album is not that serious. We're just making music and we're not dealing with Tony Taint. But Tony Taint will still show up sometimes when he's looking for a smash hit, you know, the really smash the Billboard charts. So I think Tony Taint was was the head A&R for this this uh this record and now here is a recording of tony taint that they provided me and just listen to this fucking record they just wow and baby we gotta get these fucking tracks on the radio baby serious xm is calling <laughs> We got serious XM on the line! Coming back like a yo-yo 
Next, I wanted to have them break down how they created their single Hammer. So the story of how I made Hammer, JV and I were in New York City. You know, we, we came into the studio having an idea of making like more of a kind of upbeat song, like challenging ourselves to do that. We never really done that. I had never really done that. You know what I mean? It's just not my personality, but it, it was, I think it was, would be a cool thing to try. We tried one song. It was, wasn't working out or whatever. We went to Chipotle to get some like vegan burritos. We came back. Um, we started, I had this guitar and we put an eight bit filter on it, like a video game. And, um, that was the riff to hammer the original one. And then we put some drums on it. And, uh, while we were eating our burritos, we had like some, we were just making melodies based on the burritos, like got the rice, got the beans. I'm a motherfucking fiend. Like that's what we were just doing over this beat, like over and over. And it sounded so good that like. We just kept saying it as we were eating it. And, like, I think Nolan, the engineer, came in and was like, what are you guys doing? You know what <laughs> I mean? And uh, <laughs> we came up with some real melodies to put over that. And, like, instantly, you know, we knew that this was, like, this song was really cool. You know, like I said, like, we recorded the song and I listened. I don't think we stopped listening to that song. I think we still listen to it every single day. So that was the story of Hammer. Yeah, me and Joe, we love, like... I'm a sucker, especially for just like ignorant rap shit. Like, <laughs> like, like, like I love just like like I love Playboy Cardi. I love Thousand Band Fawny. I love Uno the Activist. Me and Joe, like, we'll just put that on and like blast it and just have a great time. And we're like, dude, how do we do this with guitars? And we tried, like, we tried like a good like ten times before we came up with a beat that actually made sense and didn't sound terrible. As soon as we made that beat for Hammer just like fucking around just like let's try something a little faster let's try something a little harder and as soon as we made a beat after trying for so long that hit really hard and just like gave us good energy like those tracks do we were like super hyped and we're like y'all like this one this one's a hit One of my favorite things about music is age, where you're from in the world, none of that matters. So I wanted to have them break down the song better because this is a song I've been loving ever since I first heard it. So the story of better, me and JV were in the hotel in New York City the night before. We were up till really late um, just talking about, you know, like growing up and like we were talking about our hometown and we were talking about people that are no longer in our lives we had a long conversation of like being bummed out every time we go back home and we see familiar faces and places that like aren't so familiar anymore. And, and it's sort of like we had a whole philosophical conversation of like, what is nostalgia and why is hindsight 2020? You know, why does everything look better looking back? Cause we know it wasn't that good back then. So we were talking about that for a long time and, and you know, we woke up, the next morning, uh, went into the studio. I don't, I don't think we even talked about making a song on that subject matter. It just sort of, you know, clearly we were still thinking about it because I came up with some guitar and JV put some drums on it. And then, like the chorus kind of came out, like, was it all really better than, or am I just getting in my head? Um, it was 
totally like it was a song just made out of our conversation that we had the night before in the hotel room. And it was really cool because like, I don't know, it was like a bummer conversation. And then like, I feel like we felt way better after like we made that song. So we were just hanging out in the hotel room super late at night. And we're just talking about how we always go home and we see the same people and the same things, the same places. You know, it never has that touch like it used to. But we were also just talking about how that touch that it used to, is that really a thing? Like, were we just kids and like we just didn't care about things? Was that really what the circumstance was for that feeling? Yeah, we just had a super deep conversation and then as soon as we got in the studio and we made that beat after, you know, just riffing some melodies and putting some drums on them, that's just what started coming out of out of Joe. We didn't even think about writing the song about that until the melodies all came together. We were like, oh, like, we didn't even realize that we wrote the lyrics about that conversation until it was all said and done. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please share it on social media. To hear other episodes and more of Atlantic's podcasts, head to AtlanticPodcast.com. Nothing Nowhere's Ruiner is out now.